Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Kairos Partnerships. Bob, how you doing this morning? <laughs> I'm doing okay, Doug. I'm doing okay. Uh, I think I might have mentioned earlier, it's, I don't know, it seems like different allergies every season, you know? And yep. so I, I feel like I've, I've got some of that going on, but otherwise it's a beautiful day here in Boise and, and uh, <laughs> life is good. Yeah. We just, we just made our first pot of soup uh, for, well, it, clearly it's not the morning, but I say, you know, good morning, but we made our first yeah. pot of soup today because it's the first day that it really feels cold. And so I'm super, ah, super excited. Yeah. Yes. Fall is definitely in the air and uh, I'm excited about that. We, we went last night to an open air play that had been rescheduled hmm. from the week previous because a massive thunderstorm. Thunder and lightning and rain came in and washed over. Uh, that's why we were still in the first act. But we went last night and weather was beautiful, but it was a little chilly. It was just that crisp yeah. in the air. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I feel like when it comes down to just this time of year, I don't know about you, but it's been interesting as a pastor. I've had a lot of really hard things happen usually during the month of October. And so I sometimes feel like there's a little bit of like residual PTSD when the month comes in and I'm kind of oh, like, oh man. Yeah. It's, you, it's sort of this weird thing. Huh. Do you think that's maybe why October is clergy appreciation month? <laughs> it could be. That's a great segue. Um, yeah. You know what? I, I would say that there is definitely some of that. I think it's that weird balance of you want to be noticed, but you also don't want to be noticed too. Um, I, I, I don't know. It, for me, it just, it feels sort of like this weird, you know, birthday party that your, you know, your mom put a ton of time into throwing, but you're sort of like, I, I'm really glad you did, but I also feel kind of awkward in this, in this moment. But I, I've been really blessed. The church that, that I serve, they've, they've done a really nice job of, of noticing um, and, and helping me feel seen and helping the other pastors on staff feel seen, which is, which is always a gift. And I know that's not the case in most churches yeah. in America. It's like, you know, you see clergy appreciation month come up on your Google. Well, I don't think it's on Google calendar. It should be, it should be on <laughs> Google calendar. Um, but I, I was but walking through the store the other day and I actually saw clergy appreciation cards. What? And, yeah, I I'd, I'd never seen that before. And they, you know, they had a wide spectrum of pastor and father mm. this and rabbi and yeah, I just thought it was interesting. very interesting. I think it was in Walmart, so that might make a little more sense, but Okay. That um, makes sense. Yeah, Clergy Appreciation Month is is and again, I don't know how we got on this topic. I'd love to know where that came from. I'd also, yeah, I would love to know who put it in October because it feels to me like one of those things like, look, as a pastor, you can almost for sure guess that maybe there's going to be something around Christmas. Like generally <laughs> speaking, you know, right. if, if people are, are thoughtful, whether it's in individual families, just giving you a little something, a book or a gift card to take your spouse out to, to dinner or something, or the church as a whole kind of gets together and does something, you know, Christmas is usually something. And so my thinking is if you want to appreciate a, uh, the clergy the most, like don't do that thing. Uh, like people who have birthdays in December hate it. 
Like spread yeah. it out a little bit. Let's do clergy yep. appreciation month in May. You know, let's get yes. it as far away from December as we can. Yes. And, good uh, call. have two touch points in the year where the church can maybe say thank you. I don't yeah. know. Just my humble suggestion. I think that it's almost like a half birthday, right? Like yeah, the people yeah, that exactly. celebrated on like seven and a half, which, yeah. which was never my family, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. So for you, Bob, who, who's a pastor in your life who you've really like appreciated, you know, as the years have gone on, like you can think back to a particular pastor who has just shaped you well. I'll tell you the one, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's been a number of them, but the one that comes to mind first was probably my original youth pastor was a guy named Marty. And the reason why I appreciate Marty is because he saw potential in me and he tried, he worked to bring it out. He would say things, he would ask me questions, like I would find myself kind of helping to clean up our, the room where we did Sunday morning class or something afterwards, it was just me and him. And he'd say, so what do you think about where we should take youth group or what, you know, he would ask my opinion. Uh, he knew when I had a certain interest in something, he'd ask me to teach on it. Like mm. I, he, I, I got a guitar and he allowed me to lead worship. Like it, it, wow. I was terrible, terrible, <laughs> but he was willing to have the group as a whole pay the tax so that I could learn how to lead, you know? Mm. And I just, I feel like, man, what a, what a great guy he was. What a great guy. Yeah. He, he was also very authentic, shared some, a lot of his pain with me. Uh, just as we would talk and hard things would be happening. Um, I still remember the time I had stopped to see him when I was driving through the town uh, that he lived in later, uh, many years later after he was no longer our youth pastor, but had moved on to different churches and um, just talking to him, talking to him about his family, his life. He said, yeah, I've got this thing in my thumb. My thumb keeps twitching. I got to go to the doctor and figure that out. And it wasn't like a year later, he was, he was gone. He, he ALS mm. had taken him. And, uh, I just, uh, there's, there was something about Marty and the way that he loved us as youth, the way he encouraged us and the way he was a real person, like a, a, a real person in, in process that you don't often see in, in, in pastors that I appreciated about him. Hmm. Wow, Bob, that thank you yeah, so much for sharing you, that. Who have you appreciated? Yeah, no, that's oh, that's no problem. And this is tough because, you know, I know that you've been you've been serving for years under JR and now as he's yeah. kind of stepped aside, like, so I'm gonna give you an out and say, uh, who in your formative <laughs> years Yeah, that's good was a pastor that you really appreciate and and uh yeah. made a difference for you? Oh man. I mean, I, I think, uh, two come to mind. Um, sorry, not, not to outdo you, but, uh, Scott Wright and Jim Rich, and I, I'm going to stick with Jim Rich. And, uh, Jim was my first, he was my youth pastor, like the first ever youth pastor. And I remember kind of similar, uh, when I was part of the youth group, he, he would always have me lead things. He would always like, he saw something in me that I, I just couldn't, I didn't see in me. And even to this day, it's like, it, it, 
there are certain qualities and skills of leadership that I just, I fail to see in me. And it's like, I can remember back to Jim calling them out as like mm -hmm. a, as an awkward seventh grader who had, you know, who was just trying to figure, figure, you know, just try to like, not look like an idiot. But what I appreciated too, is similarly his, he and his wife, just their, their whole life was accessible. There was this accessibility of, and yes, they had healthy boundaries and all that, but you know, his, his wife went through some really, really heavy medical stuff with, um, with like fibromyalgia and some things like that. And just watching him love and care for his wife so well, uh, just really shaped me. Um, it was neat when I celebrated 10 years of youth ministry slash I'm leaving the church that I was at as a youth pastor, he actually came, um, and it was just such a, I don't know, I, I just remember seeing him and just thinking, you know, you took me golfing and you introduced me to Jesus and what, you know, mini golfing and, you know, you grabbed ice cream with me and, and you just talked with me like I was an adult. And that, that had such deep impact. And, and unfortunately, I, I really, I really moved far away from Jesus in the, the few years after that. But when I came, when I came back to the Lord, it was like, there was this history and the story of, 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 of what to do and where to go because of the, the life that Jim lived out in front of me. Um, so yeah, it was just, Jim was such a gift to me. It still is a gift to me, but just really grateful for that. guest today is author Frank Viola. He has helped thousands of people around the world deepen their relation with Jesus Christ and enter into a more vibrant and authentic experience of the church. His mission is to help serious followers of Jesus know their Lord more deeply so that they can experience real transformation and make lasting impacts. Uh, he's written many books on the themes, including God's favorite place on earth, from eternity to here, and his landmark book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel for the Kingdom. His blog, uh, Beyond Evangelical, is rated one of the most popular in Christian circles today. And uh, we want to ask that you would check out his, he has a new book that just came out called The 48 Laws of Spiritual Power. And there is a great website with that, 48laws.com. Um, and so we hope that you enjoy our conversation with Frank Viola. Frank, we are so glad to have you on with us today here at the Monday Morning Pastor. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'd love to start our time. Just tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your particular calling. Oh, wow. Well, um, <laughs> I'm an author. I've been writing books since uh, 2005. And uh, mostly what I write about is uh, on the subject of the deeper Christian life. And so my audience, typically it's Christians in their 20s, 30s, and early 40s. Most of them are in ministry, and there's something in their heart that cries out, there must be more than this. And so my books, I've, I've published at this point about 14 volumes on themes related to the deeper Christian life. I travel, I speak, and I guess the best description of what I have done over the the course of 25 years is I, I plant first century style churches, first century style, the way Paul of Tarsus did. Go into a town, preach the gospel, bring a group of Christians together, show them how to know Jesus Christ and take care of one another, and then leave them on their own. And uh, so whatever one wants to call that ministry, <laughs> um, that's what I have been doing for a very long time. But um, as we'll talk about today, I, I do work with pastors and leaders in different contexts, 
And, um, and I really enjoy doing that. Frank, you've recently written a book called The 48 Laws of Spiritual Power, which was inspired by a secular title, 48 Laws of Power. Uh, we're just wondering, what made you want to write this book? How did it come about? Uh, yeah, tell us more about the genesis of this. Yeah, you're correct. Uh, there was put in my hands a secular book, 48 Laws of Power. I'd never heard of the author, Robert Greene. And um, I was intrigued by it. It was actually given to me on audio. So I, I listened to four or five chapters. And the concept just triggered in me the great need to outline the laws of spiritual power, God's power. And it's interesting because the book, uh, the original book, uh, 48 Laws of Power, is all about how to leverage um, selfishness, the power of the soul, natural power, to basically gain earthly power uh, over others, uh, earthly power to to gain money, to gain influence. And I just thought, you know what, there needs to be a book <laughs> on the laws that govern spiritual power, God's power. And the the principles that govern God's power uh, are actually counterintuitive. They're countercultural. Uh, they're, I would even say, counternatural. And um, it's the exact opposite of what <laughs> what Green does in his book. But I just began hmm. excavating my mind and everything I have discovered over the years, both by trial and error and uh, serendipitous successes of how the principles of God's power operates in a human life. And so hmm. I distilled them down to 48. And um, I basically follow the same kind of model that, that uh, Robert Greene does in his book, where I describe the power, the law of, of, of God's power. I describe it, define it, then I uh, tell a story exemplifying it, and then I give some kind of a practical handle so that readers can actually put it into practice in their own lives. Can you give us a few examples? I'm, I'm, I haven't seen the book yet, and I'm really curious. <laughs> they, I haven't got. They, they it only yet. sent one copy to Somebody, me. I was like, "Hey, you should send it to my buddy yeah, Bob too." I got it. <laughs> Dang it, Doug. I'll, I'll, um, I'll give you a few examples. Um, one of them, law number nine, is find spiritual satisfaction. And this is all about the great need but all servants of God have to find their satisfaction, their inner satisfaction in Christ. If that need is not met, they will become spiritually bored, and they are open game for all sorts of hazards. Hmm. And typically, typically when, a, when a Christian gets in trouble, a leader gets in trouble, it's because they're not satisfied in Christ, with Christ. So I talk about this extensively in the book. Another law that I see uh, applying to many ministers is leave the results with God. That's law number seven. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have talked to so many leaders uh, in ministry, and they're just obsessed with and disconcerted over, am I doing enough? Am I making an impact? You know, are people really being helped? Um, is my ministry worth anything? And so it's a real thorny question that goes right to their own persona. 
So that's another one. Another law is it takes one to make one. And um, that's law number four. <laughs> I'm giving numbers in case somebody ever gets the book. Um, it takes one to make one. And this is a spiritual principle that will not move. Basically, the greatest ingredient to having ministry impact, it's impact. It's not learning more strategies. It's not having better techniques. It's, it's not even praying more and reading your Bible more. Okay? It's not going to seminars and gaining more information and more knowledge. It is your own transformation. And you cannot pass on to other people that which you have not experienced yourself. And if you are um, distributing ministry uh, that does not come out of experience, uh, number one, it's not going to last very long in the lives of the people who hear it. Um, and two, it will have no spiritual value at all, no eternal value. Mm -hmm. So it takes one to make one is another law. So those are just a few examples of, of what's in the book. I think that's, first of all, that's really helpful. And, and even as I was reading through it, I was thinking about a conversation that I just had with a young pastor who left the ministry. Uh, and really some of the main reason why is because he was coming up to the reality of working in a pretty toxic leadership environment. Um, and so I think even as I've read through your book and as I've looked at a lot of these things and, and just weighed them with that and even thinking there's just a lot of pastors. Uh, I mean, I was on staff at a, at a large church and by the time that I left, uh, so I was there for 10 years, there were, there were 50 staff members come and gone in 10 years. And so it just seems like there's a lot of uh, turmoil that that comes uh, when when spiritual power is not used in the right space. And so I think there's part of me that's just wondering too, like, what would you say to a pastor who's experienced uh, sort of the abuse of spiritual power and the turmoil that comes from that? Well, you know, that's a big question because it, it cuts many different ways. Like, for example, why is it that some spiritual leaders become abusive, right? That's one angle of it. Another one is um, what can be, what can deter a person from becoming abusive. Um, and then the other one is what you asked, you know, how do you, how do you get a, a leader who has been, uh, let's say, the subject of a mad, jealous, spear-wielding wielding Saul throwing javelins <laughs> um, where you're, you're basically, uh, your def default mode is to, is to duck. Um, I do have a chapter on that because First of all, what I would say to someone like this is, number one, a lot of the structures that are in place in the Christian world actually um, give credence to and provide an environment for ministers to become abusive, okay? So it's a systemic problem, and I've addressed that in some of my other books, you know, the, the whole system and structure, because no human being is designed to have the kind of earthly human um, influence, uh, the kind of power and the kind of prestige that comes uh, to many ministers if they're in a certain system and if, it, if they're in a certain uh, environment. No human being can handle that. It's going to corrupt anybody. And so that's number one. There's this, a systemic element. The, num the number two thing I would say to a young pastor who's been hurt by others is, 
and this is this is sort of difficult to get get our uh, spiritual arms around, but it is this: um, God the Father did not sanction it. God the Father did not approve of it. God the Father uh, does not joy in it. But I'll tell you what: God the Father was ultimately behind it. And if you could. Uh, as a Christian, get your get your uh, spiritual heart wrapped around the fact that my father saw this, he permitted it, and he is an expert at writing straight with crooked lines. And he used that Saul-David experience to bring brokenness into your life so that you can actually rise up and become a David. And the most spiritual people I have ever met the people who were used of God, and I'm not talking about they were operating on, on the energy of the flesh, they were operating on God's true power, were people who had a Saul in their life, and they survived Saul. They didn't become bitter. They, they didn't uh, commit spiritual shipwreck and blame God. Uh, and they did not allow their souls to become poisoned by the hurt and the pain, they let the hand of God break them in that situation, even though the Lord himself didn't approve it, right? So mm -hmm. there's there's something to be said about the house of God is built on failure and pain. And it's interesting because when you study the life of David, you find that the very place that became the building site for the temple was the place where David made his biggest mistake and, and one of the places where he experienced the most pain. And so God's house, God's ministry is built on brokenness, and the Lord will use things that are totally outside his will, like an abusive leader, right? He will use the Saul to break the David so that David can become the man after God's own heart who actually is useful in building God's house. So those are some of the initial things I would say to the young pastor who's been victimized by that. And, um, and I do talk about this in the book as well. I, I, think, I think what you're saying is really helpful in framing just what comes after, right? And, and there is an understanding of, you know, I think sometimes people really struggle with, well, well where was God when? And I think what's amazing is God in, in his goodness somehow takes, and this is what I'm hearing you say, is like he takes these things and really if we if we submit ourselves to to God's work in our lives, it actually become great places of strength and healing and even launch pads into further fruit, fruit fruitfulness for the kingdom. And, and I think that that's, I think that's really helpful for, for, for pastors just in general. And even just to think about how, you know, there are people that I know I've hurt as a pastor and, you know, the good news of the gospel is that God somehow can transform that. And he can transform me in that, you know, in, in the beautiful words of, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Um, and, and I think that, I think this, this also really leads really well into into another question that, that that Bob and I were thinking through is, you know, much of what you talk about is about leading others, but there's also a lot in your book about leading and caring for yourself. So this balance seems to be a tricky one to 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 take. And why do you think that is? Well, I think it's it's a temptation for every person who is zealous to serve God to succumb to. And what, I, what I'm talking about is to serve the God of ministry over Jesus Christ himself. It's very easy in our zeal to 
serve and to help others, to begin serving the God of serving God instead of and above the Lord Jesus himself, to put it another way, slightly differently. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the key things that has to be sort of a gyroscope in our own lives is to ask ourselves the question, am I being satisfied with Jesus Christ? Am I knowing him and experiencing him in a way that satisfies my soul? And it is out of that uh, overflow, really, because that's the engine that is, drives spiritual power. Out of that overflow, we minister and we serve others. And when that begins to ebb and, and draw back, then we know it's time. We have to take a break. We have to hit pause. We have to hit the brakes. And we have to spend some time with the Lord or with other brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ, depending on your context, to begin to seek him and experience him. And, and I'll use the term that comes out of the Gospels, begin to touch him. And there are ways to touch the Lord. There are ways to know the Lord. I talk about some of it in the book. But I think that this is a, a great problem in the Christian world. Uh, I know for myself when I came to the Lord as a young man, I was all about serving. I was zealous to give and to and to help other people. But it dawned on me, and, and I had some experiences that made, made my eyes open to this. I really didn't know the Lord that very well. I didn't know him that very well. And, um, and I find this to be true with many, many, many ministers by their own confessions, you know, because I, I, I have masterminds where I work with a lot of pastors. And um, when they really have been exposed to an unveiling of Christ, like they've never seen before, never heard before, it kind of reveals the, the, uh, the poverty that's there. Like, I really don't know the Lord that well. And so uh, sometimes these guys hit the brakes totally and, and step back a, a bit from ministry until they really begin to explore what it means to touch him, to know him, to experience him. And that's the um, headwaters of spiritual power, true, real spiritual power. Uh, we have a lot of counterfeits that are confused for spiritual power, like, you know, natural charisma, for example, right? Uh, there are people who can speak eloquently. You know, they're like the Greek orators <laughs> of the first century that wowed people. Paul, Paul Tarsus <laughs> had to deal with that in Corinth. Um, but Spiritual power is something very, very different, and it can't be duplicated. Um, and so, you know, again, I get back to this business. It takes one to make one. But I think that we've been conditioned that as soon as you come to the Lord, you got to get busy. You got to keep doing it. You got to keep working it. You know what I mean? You're not doing enough. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I meet a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders that are just fried. They are burned out. And uh, I can only tell you this, if, if you have, if you come to know the Lord, and there are ways to do this uh, in a way that's steady and consistent, um, and you're really touching him, then you have found a well that will never run dry. Mm -hmm. And you can go on and on in ministry because you're not operating out of your own natural power and your own natural soul life. You're operating from a totally different um, source.
Frank, I'm I'm wondering, uh, you speak from a just a long history of of doing ministry in different ways and and writing and speaking with with pastors. I'm wondering for you, out of these uh, 48 laws that you've come up with, which one represents the most hard won bit of of wisdom? Which one was the the hardest lesson for you to learn or Maybe another way to ask it, which one's been particularly difficult to follow in your own life? Yeah, that's a fantastic um, question. Um, you know, I do talk about the um, the need for um, letting things go. Mm-hmm. And for many years, I had a real hard time turning loose uh, pain and hurt that came my way from other Christians. And um, in 2019, I, I had a head-on collision with the Lord in a way that, <laughs> that absolutely broke and shattered me from that proclivity uh, to hang on and, and not let go and to hang on to the wrong things, let's put it that way. And, and actually, what, what came out of it is a book entitled Hang On, Let Go, which is my last book with Tyndale, Tyndale House. And um, it it explores the lessons I learned over the years on how to actually let go and at the same time, hang on to those things that the Lord wants us to hang on to. And so it's it's sort of a counterintuitive thing, but that was one of the biggest things is to let go of hurt and pain that has been incurred from other Christians. And by the way, if you're going to step into the ministry, you have got to have super thick skin. Okay. You're going to get mistreated. You're going to get hurt. You're, you're going to get attacked. You're going to be misunderstood. It goes on and on. And I talk about this in the book. But the one that really stands out right now, and it has been for a number of years, is the one about co-working. And and I'll tell you why. Co-working is uh, in the bloodstream of the kingdom of God. And I have a whole chapter on it in the book. The problem is it's very difficult to find peers true peers who are willing to co-work. Uh, now, I've done some projects together with a number of well-known authors. I've written three books with one of them. I've written one book with another. I, I wrote another book with a female author. Um, but to be able to co-work in our time, most of my peers, they prefer to be Michael Jackson's rather than <laughs> members of the Beatles or Led Zeppelin, okay? And and I'm somebody who's, you know, I, I'm Jimmy Page looking for John Bonham and John Paul Jones and uh, Robert Plant. I, I, I work great as a team, but there's a price to pay. It's a lot easier to, to be a solo act, okay? Um, and so I, I have a whole chapter where I pour my heart out about this, but I really see it as a problem because the kingdom of God is moving so slow in terms of advancement, and one of the primary reasons is many of the leading servants today are unwilling to co-work. And mm-hmm. part of the reason, part of the reason for it is jealousy, the fear of being overshined, outshined. Another one is the fear of diversity. Um, I don't know any two workers who. Uh, agree on everything. You know, Paul didn't agree with Barnabas and everything. Paul didn't agree with Silas on everything, but they worked together. And um, and so that's a burden of mine. And that that would be the biggest stru- struggle is finding peers. And that's the key word there, peers, 
uh, who are willing to co-work. I, I appreciate even the way you talked about, as you were talking about co-working and, and just the ability to work with other pastors. Um, I appreciate something you said before in terms of just learning to let go. And I think especially on Mondays, there's this temptation that pastors have to carry. It could have been a great gathering. You could have seen some really cool stuff, whether you're in a house church or a regular gathering or whatever, and you see God really at work. But 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 what you take from the day was that one thing that went wrong or that one comment that the pastor, you know, that that somebody said. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like, like what? What what wisdom would you have for that pastor who's who's really struggling to let go of that thing? Well, you know, I, I do address this in the book, too, just in case people want more. But there is built into the DNA of God's kingdom, the cross. And I don't mean the, the atoning death of Jesus. I mean the laying your life down, the letting go, the denying yourself. And I'm going to use one word that encapsulates what the cross means, and that is the willingness to lose, L-O-S-E, to lose rather than to win. And I have learned in my own life, this is going to sound completely contradictory, that when I go somewhere to speak, or if I'm asked to minister, or I have a counseling situation I have to handle, I go there to fail. I go there to fail because if I'm winning, Jesus Christ is not succeeding. And I am so dependent on the Lord, but I know that if he doesn't come through, nothing's going to happen. Even if outwardly some, you know, looks good. And so I have learned to lose from the get-go. That it, it, even before I step onto, you know, uh, um, a podium to speak, uh, or, or I, I go and I meet with a person that, you know, is really in need, I'm already, I have already lost in my own mind and heart. And now it's, Lord, if you don't come through, this isn't going to go anywhere. And basically, I put the whole burden on his shoulders. So it's kind of like, okay, here's the car, here are the keys, I'm handing the keys to someone else, I let go of the keys because it's not my business anymore. And I, I give an illustration on how to do this in one of the chapters. Uh, I, I give an illustration of two bowlers and they're bowling. And one of them, as soon as the, the ball releases from his hand, he turns around and walks out of the building because the, it's not his business anymore. And uh, so just learning how to lose, going to fail, and then recognizing that it's God's business. And here's the contradictory part. Even as I am uh, wired and, and have set my face as a flint to fail, I'm also saying this to the Lord. This is your business. I'm going to do my best, but I don't trust my best. I trust you. And that, and that to me is the ingredient to see really, really big, amazing things happen. And, and you know what the consequence of that is? You don't have pride. You don't have arrogance, which gets back to the abusive thing. Those are the roots that create abusive leaders, pride and arrogance. It's confusing the paintbrush with the artist who uses the paintbrush. And so in this, in this framework that I'm sharing, you recognize that you're just a marred, imperfect, 
almost dysfunctional paintbrush. And it's the responsibility of the hand of the great artist to be able to create a masterpiece despite the fact that it's not a pay, despite the fact that you're not a perfect paintbrush. And, uh, and then all glory goes to the Lord, you know, because you know it wasn't you. Frank, <laughs> it seems like most of what you've talked about would be really helpful for young leaders to keep in mind. But I wonder if there are any of the laws that you wrote uh, that you were particularly thinking of those just starting off in ministry or those in their early days? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question because these laws, you know, I, I actually um, test drove this book in an early version, and I had ministers, not just pastors, but missionaries, um, even uh, professors at colleges and uh, Bible schools, uh, seminaries even, um, look at these laws before I, you know, really polished them up for, for Tyndale. Um, and every single one of them said, whether they've been to seminary or not, every single one of them, the, the, the outstanding comment that was common to all was, I never saw some of this before. I never mm -hmm. learned anything like this before. Whether they were in their 60s or whether they were in their 20s, they all learned quite a bit about the principles that that uh, that govern the the uh, power of God in a person's life. You know, one of the big ones is, um, let's see, law number. I'm looking at the table of contents now. <laughs> uh, law number three: Beware the empty house. Now, I'm sure you you are familiar with the um, parable about Jesus that Jesus gave about the the empty house, the danger of the empty house. Well. One of the applications I make on that is, is this, that once you have been used by God in a powerful way, okay, you have expended uh, that energy, okay, God's power has been on you either through preaching or maybe you've prayed for people and saw the Lord operate. At that moment, when that power has left you, and you're going into your car and on your way home, at that moment, you're the most vulnerable that you will ever be. You're the most open to temptation that you will ever be. And that is the danger of the empty house. And I talk about it, and I talk about the remedies for it. But the, these are sort of the things that, you know, according to a lot of these uh, people who had read it, they said, I never learned this in seminary. <laughs> we never talked about that. Uh, but these are things that you learn uh, over time you know, when you're on the front lines in ministry and you're working with the Lord's people and you're working with really difficult, hot, boiling situations, these are some of the, the uh, principles that come out of it. So, yeah, the, the, the book is full of that sort of thing. But I think it speaks to all ages, uh, not just the young, but uh, those who are seasoned as well. Well, Frank, thank you so much for taking the time just to share some of these thoughts. And yeah, again, I I, I think there's so much good to gleam from, from the wisdom of this book. And I feel like for pastors who are just thinking about, you know, I'm in the fall, things are seeming like it's getting a little harder. I'm getting a little crispy around the edges. This seems like a real, a real breath of fresh air to pastors. And even I, I appreciate the practicality of it too. Um, so thank you so much. And I would love, we'd love to ask if you could leave us with a benediction or a blessing. Absolutely. 
Oh, Lord, uh, you know who's listening to this. You know who will listen to it. And I just ask that you would take um, what has been shared here and penetrate the hearts, the minds, the emotions, the souls of every leader, every person whom you have called to your work, every person who is uh, struggling, who is um, maybe they're struggling and they don't know they're struggling. Um, but you would uh, open their eyes and, and their hearts and speak to them and give them the necessary recipe that will bring them to the next step in your will. That, that's my prayer, Lord. Show them the next step and then give them the, uh, cause them to have the strength to take it and remove the obstacles that stand in the way for your glory alone. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of MMP. Our passion is to serve, partner with, and equip hungry pastors and kingdom leaders just like you. Have you signed up for the Kairos Partnerships free weekly newsletter called Five Things in Five Minutes? It's free and it's delivered to your inbox every Tuesday morning. It provides valuable thoughts, links, questions, and quotes to equip you for the ministry and leadership journey. And the entire thing can be read in five minutes or less. To sign up, log on to kairospartnerships.org slash 5T5M. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.